In our study of Matthew's Gospel, we've reached chapter 4. And uh, as you can see, starting at verse 12, Jesus has been tested in the wilderness. Now he begins to preach in Galilee. He calls his first disciples and he heals the sick. What's changed? So, reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Gonna... Yeah. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Andy. There's a real peace about the worship this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I just want to start by quashing any disillusionment. Um, John said last week that I would be teaching on um, fasting. He's right, I will be, just not today. So I just thought, I just, you know, if anybody's looking forward to that, really sorry, that's in about four weeks' time. No, today I'm just focusing on chapter four, verses 12 to 25. Um, as a quick intro, I can set the scene, but there's not a lot to say. The reality is we know very little about Jesus from the time in his, of his birth up to this point where he's about to step on the world stage and he's about to start his ministry in his earthly body. We know he was born in Bethlehem. We know that for a short while straight afterwards he went to Egypt while Herod was massacring the infants for fear of this king that, was a, that had been born. 
Um, but we know very little for the th from the 30 years from then up until this point in the story. The speculation, um, the speculation that Joseph of Arimathea could have been his uncle, and that was why he lent him his, his tomb, and that he came to, possibly came to the UK, to Somerset, to Glastonbury, but there's no hard evidence. The only, only hard stuff that we know about is the 12-year-old story of when he went to the temple. So there's 30 years of preparatory work ready for this ministry in his earthly body, there's, but there's very little information about. As um, we read in the beginning of the passage, he hears about John the Baptist being arrested. And he goes to um, Capernaum, and he, he relocates, and it's as if God is taking John the Baptist out, taking him a step back, and, and, and it's Jesus' time to step forward. It's as if there's a hint there. Um, we know with um, Capernaum that it's on the Sea of Galilee. There was a thriving fishing industry there, and hence why so many of the disciples that he called were fishermen. But really, before this... Before he steps out and starts, there's very little information. How I kind of think of it, he's, he's doing, he has 30 years of preparing. He's then about to start on three years of ministry. And we know, of course, it ends with three days when he's in the grave and the resurrection. So I'm going to base this talk on four words. Prophecy, proposition, position, and power. And I'm going to start with prophecy. So Matthew here... He's, we know that Jesus has just moved house, he's just relocated. And Matthew, before he starts to talk about Jesus, he gives us this tricky bit of scripture. And I'll read it again, just this little bit that Mike said. And he quotes from Isaiah, and Matthew says, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in the darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew is talking and is quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah is talking of Zebulun. And the history of it is, previous years, years early, Zebulun and Naphtali, a lot of the Jews were exiled from there. And while they were exiled out and they were in captivity, they were praying to God. They were praying for a liberator. They were praying for a deliverer. They were praying to be freed. And Matthew is, is quoting back to this point and he says, or I'll, I'll quote from Isaiah directly, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he, that's God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. Matthew is looking back at the prophecies to see and to point out the fact that they're pointing forward to this moment in time. This man that's about to walk out and start his ministry, all of these prophecies are pointing to this moment. Matthew is looking back at the prophecy that's hinting about the light of the world before the light of the world steps out. If we, if we look at Zebulun and we go back further in Genesis, Zebulun is mentioned 
And in chapter 49, in verses 10 to 14, it talks about Zebulun. And it says Zebulun, will, it's associated with this ruler. And it says this ruler will be a king and he will have, um, he will have a scepter and he'll be the king of all kings and he'll have, um, he'll have a staff because he'll be the ultimate shepherd. And it talks of this ruler. And, it, and in, the, in, in the language, it talks of robes and bloodshed and wine and tethering up a donkey. And Genesis is prophesying about Matthew 4. This light of the world, this ultimate king, this shepherd of all shepherds is about to start his ministry. Graham titled this ministry starts. It's, it's just about to get going. Again, if we look in Kings, we can read of the exile of Naphtali. It says, the king of Assyria he took Gilead, he took Gal and Galilee, including the land of Naphtali, and he deported the people to Assyria. The people, when they were deported, they were distressed. They were crying out for a liberator. But the reality is, this isn't just a liberator for their situation. This is the liberator of the world. Why is it mentioned? Why does Matthew go back and mention these things? Well, the reality is, Jesus' ministry that's just about to start he is fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies. They're all leading to the point and they're all pointing to this person. He is Isaiah's light. Jesus is the ruler associated with Zebulun in Genesis. He is the liberator of the captives that were longed for in Kings. For Matthew, it's like I put down, it's a spiritual switch on moment. It's like, ta-da, this is what it's about. He is here. He's getting them to look back and recognize that it's pointing to this point. Jesus, when he, when he steps out, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he's bolting it onto John the Baptist's words, because those were John the Baptist's famous words in the desert, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I have a, a red letter Bible, and the bit in between, we have the description of the disciples. But if you then carry on with as he would have said it, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Follow me. He is bolting it on. He is linking it. He is saying, I am all of those things in the, in, in the past that we're pointing to, but I am also a fresh start. There was obviously a, a sensibility about that because the reality was the national religions were legal. So Jesus going into the synagogues and preaching was legal, but he was also a fresh start. What Jesus was about was much bigger than the Jews. His ministry wasn't just for the Jews. We know that because when he talks about new wine in old wineskins, you know, what Jesus is, 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 is hinting at is this new wine, this new message that I'm giving you, this salvation, this redemption for everybody, cannot be contained in the vehicle of the old Jewish faith. It can't be contained in an old wineskin. It will birth, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than just the Jewish faith. So point one, prophecy. All of the prophecy is pointing to this ministry that is about to start. So Jesus walks up to his disciples, follow me. I wrote down, it's the invitation of a lifetime. It was then. So those guys in that boat, on that beach, wherever that conversation took place. It's the invitation of a lifetime. It's the invitation to us for a lifetime. Um, it was interesting because we had a, a discussion in our Tuesday night Bible class. In fact, I think Andy said it. We were on about 
Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And I think in some of the versions it says, uh, become fishers of men. And like, we were starting out in our Tuesday evening about going, that's a bit of a cranky way to invite people to do something. And, and I agreed with it at the time. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then over the week, I kind of thought, no, no, I get it. And the more I thought about it, the more I get it. And I thought, well, when I worked in the bank for 18 years, um, we'd say things like, um, oh, and I was into stocks and investment, we'd say, you, you want to do that course? Oh, that one will pay dividends back later. Or, um, oh, you, you don't want to go and work in that branch, you won't get much return back on that. And the reality was, it didn't even become bank jargon, it was just so normal vocabulary. And I think Jesus is pure genius. He's contextualised himself to fishermen, become fishers of men. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. And the more the, as the week's gone on, I've thought, well, I get the cranky saying, I get it, I completely get it, it's, it's, it is genius. But when Jesus says, follow me, I think he intim- there's a closeness about it. And when we follow somebody, it's easier to follow them close up. We can't follow somebody from a distance. We can track them, but we can't follow them. If we're close up and we hear them and we listen to them, we can follow them a lot closer. Um, the reality is, when we know that God isn't some distant deity in the sky and is here right by us, it is so, it is, it is so much better, it is so much re- more, more real, it's, 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 it, the closeness is important with follow me. I thought of, I was trying to think of scriptural examples like to, to, to recognise that closeness that we, have to, we are called to now. And I know a lot of you have heard the story about when Mark and I moved house, but I thought in scripture, where in scripture does it, does, does it show that, that, how important that closeness is? And um, I don't know if you remember in the Old Testament when they're walking around in the desert and they're going around in circles behind Moses and God's giving them laws and it's like law after law and there's over 300 and it's like, yippee, one for every day of the week. Every day of the year, keep going, Moses. And he comes out with this law and he says, do not sow more than one seed variety in a field. And you read it and you think, that's like a law for law's sake. And then you get in the next law, you know, do not make clothing, do not make a garment out of two different kinds of material. And you think, law for law's sake. But the, re- but the reality is, while they were in the desert, while they were contained, Jesus knew the difficulties that they would face when they went into the promised land. And he gave them these rules that didn't make sense there and then. But by following them, he was keeping them safe. Because when they get into the promised land, the reality is the Canaanites have have these rituals where they would sow a field with more than one different seed. And they would pray to their false gods for multiplication of crops. And they would get their garments and they would sew them together in diff- out of different materials and they would pray to their false gods for multiplication of, of, of cattle. And God knew what was ahead. He knew the pitfalls and he knew the stumbling blocks on the path. And he gave them these rules to follow, to keep them safe. And there's something for us in that. This, the closer we keep to Jesus, we will always have problems thrown at us, but the closer we keep then the more we're on the right track. So prophecy, proposition, he says, follow me. It's an invitation to us today.
My third P, position. Jesus is the leader up front. Jesus has to be the one that we fall in line behind. If we get ahead of him, we're out of place. If we're not behind him, we're out of place. If you think of um, a school trip with um, a school teacher or a museum guide or the, the tourist guides that hang outside the um, Bridge North um, Library and the people meet and they crocodile around behind them in Bridge North and get under your feet on a Saturday. The person with the authority, the person who knows what they're on about, they're, per- they're at the front and that's with Jesus. We have to fall in line behind him. Think of the plume of smoke. Think of the column of fire in the Old Testament. Had to fall behind him. And the reality is to fall in that line, to align ourselves behind Jesus, it's costly. It was costly for Jesus, but it's also going to be costly to a degree to us. It was costly to the fishermen because the reality was their wives didn't have jobs. There was no career office for women. They couldn't just nip down and say, I've had enough of Sainsbury's, you know. Outside prostitution, there wasn't any, any earning. There was no living. So for the fishermen to say, yes, I follow you, and to, and to fall in line, they were the breadwinners. They were the guys bringing in the money. And we know that some of them were married because the reality is that Jesus healed um, Peter's mother-in-law. So it's costly, but the position is to fall in line behind Jesus. Power. In verses 23 to 25, we have this wonderful display of the miracles of Jesus' ministry of the ministry that's possible for us if we follow it. In fact, I I love it that much, I'm just going to read it. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People were brought to him with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, he healed them. We often notice the wow factor and the impact moment with a miracle. And that's brilliant. But the reality is, his ministry, his, his healings were at a much deeper level. When Jesus healed, he healed socially and culturally, mentally. If you take, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, the leper, Jesus says, show yourself to the priest. The leper isn't socially acceptable until he's been ceremonially cleaned. And so he goes along and he he gets ceremonially cleansed. But the reality is, good as it is that the leper is physically healed, how much more would it have been for him to hug his spouse, to pick up his children, I don't know, to, to, to do community with his neighbours. Like, Jesus is interested in that stuff. Yes, he's interested in the physical, but he's interested in, 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 in everyday stuff. You know, in Mark, in chapter 5, the woman that had been bleeding for 12 years, you know, the reality is she should never have been in the crowd. She wasn't allowed in the crowd. It wasn't acceptable. And Jesus says to her, you know, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be, be freed from your suffering. He's taken a very private illness 
and made a very public healing of it. But the reality is, he's healing at a different level. He's healing at a social level. He's healing at an emotional level. It just makes you want to fall in love with him, I think, just so much more. But all that list of, those list of ministries, those ministries that Jesus did, those are examples for us. Those are the, those are the things that our ministries can, in, can contain. So to summarize, prophecy. All of the evidence is there pointing to Jesus. He starts his ministry. He is Isaiah's light. He is the liberator that the people in Naphtali and Zebulun called out for. He is the ruler that's affiliated with in Genesis. Proposition. Jesus says to the disciples, follow me. Jesus is saying to us, follow me. Position, to fall in line behind Jesus, to echo his ministry, not be ahead of him, not be behind him, following him. It's the right place to be. And power, when Jesus heals these people and he prays to the Father publicly and he heals them by the power of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't do it directly in his own strength. He's showing us what our ministry can contain that by us being in him, what we've got living in us, and what, what, what we can pray to God for, what, what healings we can pray for. Just to conclude, when Jesus said, follow me, I believe it is spoken just as loudly today as it was in that situation on that beach then. Don't lock God away in the text. Recognize what was going on, but recognize what he's saying to us here and now. I believe scripture is divine. And so if it, if it is, then it presupposes history. So when, when Jesus said, follow me to the disciples, he knew I'd be standing here saying, follow him. He knew that every other preacher who preaches on this would be saying, follow him. He knew then, you know what I mean, what, what's going on now? It's the same message. It is spoken just as loudly today as it was then. Basically, our ministry starts with the same words. I have this idea. Bear with me a minute. Um, imagine if the book of Acts carried on being written. So the Bible is still being written. And there are 28 chapters in Acts. And it's 2016, give or take, we'll call it 2016. So imagine if this year was chapter 2044 of Acts. I know, I know, just bear with me. How would it detail your ministry? How would it detail your following? What would Acts chapter 2044 say about you? Would Acts chapter 2044 say that you followed him closely or from a distance? Would Acts chapter 2044 detail the fun that you had at Christmas together on Christmas Day? Would Acts 2000 and 44, list all the amazing healings and prayer ministry that you delivered at Whitburn Street Market with the Try Praying team. Basically, it's a sermon on the grace of obedience. The disciples didn't have to follow Jesus. They didn't have to fall in line. They didn't have to start a ministry behind him. We don't have to. It's, an op- it, it, it's, it's for us to choose to be obedient or not. 
So my question really is, has your ministry started and are you ministering? Let's close in prayer. Amen.